Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, a podcast against shame. I hope you're well and I hope you're ready for another excellent fucking interview with Aubrey Gordon. I've had her on before and you loved her. You may know her on the internet from back in the day as your fat friend. She was an amazing blogger who is now a best-selling author. Uh, she came on last time to talk about her excellent book, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. And now she's back and having a really fucking good week with her new book, You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. This book is now number two on the New York Times bestseller, which is a wild debut. And she hasn't even really started doing press or promo. And so it's going to be a very good start to the year for Aubrey Gordon and for the rest of us because her work is so fucking important. Her blog's already from back in the day have given so many people the words they didn't have to discuss their own bodies and their boundaries they want to have with other people about how they talk about our bodies. She has done so much research. She has produced so much data. She has a fucking amazing podcast called The Maintenance Phase, which you must, must listen to. I think it goes very well hand in hand with Ai Wei. And she and I are very aligned as people. We we met for the first time maybe three or four years ago and totally fell in love with each other. She's just my favourite human. Nobody is as bold, as brave, as interesting, as interested, as well-researched, as kind, as empathetic, as patient and and self-reflective as Aubrey. I wish, I wish I could be more like her. I strive to be more like her. She's always the first person I run to and I really don't fucking know what to do because she's of such sound mind and she's got such a long background in advocacy that she comes at everything from such an intersectional lens. However intersectional we think we are until you've actually done the work, as in like worked in the space of having to protect lots of different minorities all at the same time, which she did you can't quite grasp it the way she does. And so therefore I have such immense trust in her opinion and trust in her words and trust in her work. And it's always such an honor to have her on the podcast. And in today's episode, we just get into so many interesting things about and all the things that we didn't get to cover the last time where we talked about the BMI and what fucking bullshit it is. And we talk about fat phobia. This time we get more into the weeds of it and go over things that she discusses in the book. We talk about the relationship between health and fatness and how one is not indicative of the other. We discuss why fat phobia is still somehow acceptable in mainstream culture and in our society. We discuss the myth of calories in, calories out. We discuss the way society blamed COVID on fatness in such a vile and violent way that led to so much extra bullying of fat people. And we break down the myth of promoting obesity and why that's such an absurd idea, amongst the many other things that she talks about. So, 
buy this book. It's called You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. It's so fucking good. It's so strong. She is so strong. And we could all do better and be better to follow her way of thinking, which makes me sound a bit culty. I know. I know that she's not actual Jesus, but she's my Jesus. All right. (laughs) And I love her. And I hope you do too. You've never, you've never met a more reasonable or delightful human. This is the fucking fabulously gorgeous Aubrey Gordon. Aubrey fucking Gordon, welcome to my way again. Thank you so much for having me back. It's always a treat to talk to you. Oh, God, I'm just always looking for an excuse to have you back because you're just one of my (laughs) favorite people I've ever had on this podcast. Uh, You're such a dream, such a gift. And not only are you so amazing online and on podcasts and on your own podcast maintenance phase, but you're also one of my favorite writers and you have a new book coming out and we're going to talk about it. So congratulations, because it is a uh, unfathomably difficult task to complete a book and you are just rolling through them at speed. And <laughs> I uh, can only imagine it's quite stressful. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of work, but also it's really, um, this is going to sound weird, uh, but it feels like really fun, liberating work to me mm-hmm. to sort of take apart the diet industry to sort of take apart anti-fat bias and to figure out how it works and see that it all is kind of working on a wing and a prayer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's built on a lot of really shoddy information um, that we have uh, been led pretty far astray by the diet industry and by sort of anti-fat myths writ large. And it feels really liberating to go oh the emperor has no clothes got it that's what we're dealing with here yeah yeah, understood you know that's that's a lovely way of putting it because i imagine when anyone is writing a book within social justice you know that so many people are going to be annoyed that you have Mm. exposed their (laughs) inherent uh maybe unconscious but definitively what we would describe as bias Mm. and so you have to be so fucking precise it has to be Mm -hmm. such uh detailed and fact checked Mm -hmm. and historically perfect Mm -hmm. um account in order to not be taken to absolute fucking pieces because what you say in your podcast and online and in these books is something that has the power to destabilize one of the biggest multi-billion dollar industries in the world. And that is the diet and kind of quote unquote wellness industry. Listen, I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. Uh, yeah, I feel like I'm sort of like, uh, I have a, like a little slingshot and I'm rocketing little pebbles at this giant mm-hmm. monolith, right? <laughs> and enough chips and, you know, hopefully we'll get somewhere, you know, yeah. hopefully we'll destabilize it a little bit. Well, for anyone who hasn't heard your first episode on this podcast, and I I hope people do, um, can you explain to me why fat phobia and Mm. uh, diet culture are so important to you? Like they've become like a core part of your work, although your work is also important. It's important to say very uh, intersectional Mm. and you have always been, I mean, even professionally an advocate for multiple different groups as rights. But why is this specifically something that you are, you are just going to die on this fucking hill? And we'll yeah, die I right sure with am. you. And we're going to be buried right <laughs> next to each other. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. I will definitely die on this hill. Okay. I mean, I will say I am a lifelong fat person. I have been at the high end of plus size clothing uh, or into extended plus size clothing, which means plus size stores don't carry your size. Um, I've sort of gone back and forth between those two for basically since I was a teenager. Um, and, uh, also like many fat people before me faced immense pressure to diet. And like many fat people before me, um, developed an eating disorder as a result of that. Uh, and I think as I've gotten further and further into researching anti-fatness and where it comes from researching the BMI and where it comes from researching, um, the idea of an obesity epidemic and where it comes from. Uh, and, uh, the ties between white supremacy and anti-fatness. No question. A mm -hmm. friend sent me a book the other day that is uh, an actual uh, American Nazi Party diet book. That is wow. like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're getting into it, right? Um, yeah, I think to see how much there are moneyed interests invested in keeping us unhappy with our bodies, there are moneyed interests invested in keeping fat people on the margins... Um, and there are these deep historical ties to anti-fatness sort of propping up other systems of privilege and oppression. Um, it has felt really um, cathartic to go, oh, the reasons for this are kind of everything but fat people's health, which is sort of what we're told most often, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's why I would say it's most important to me. Yeah, uh, and it's also sure. like, it's a, you know, division is an increasingly... Uh, popular tactic in order to distract and cause chaos and an issue in which a large portion, let's say just in the United States, although this is, you know, a global um, fight, although it's different from country mm. to country, some cultures, the fatter you are, the more wealthy you are considered and therefore you are considered more attractive and a better partner. Um, but let's say in the West, in the United States, right, mm. it's a conversation that can just be infinite because there are a lot of people who are over the weight that is deemed acceptable by mm -hmm. American society, which is extraordinary considering the vast majority of people look a certain way. Yeah. And so it's genius to create that as a problem because then you just have infinite ability to shame people, divide people, create hierarchy within society. Some people can earn money, some people can't earn money because mm -hmm. they're less likely to be hired if they're fat because they're deemed lazy. Uh, and then we create divisions in the clothing market. We create uh, divisions emotionally and then we prop up the multi, multi, multi-billion dollar predatory diet culture. And so I am equally obsessed with your fight. We've had different journeys and similar journeys all at the yeah. same time. And I think that's why we're good friends. I think so too. Yeah, I think our paths keep crisscrossing on, you know, sort of related issues. And it's been really fun and lovely. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll look, <laughs> we have really... you on speed dial. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. likewise. But um, we, one of the things we bonded over, even in our last episode, was the fact that, you know, and we're going to get further into this because your book has really, like, this is the most, like, pedantic, diligent, mm. <laughs> like, not a dot, uh, not an I undotted, not a T uncrossed. You have gone into every single fucking possible question anyone can have around mm. fat phobia, fat history, diet history, etc. But one of the things that we bonded over was the health conversation mm -hmm. because you and I look different, we're different sizes. And yet mm -hmm. I am the one who, because of my size, is never questioned about my health. 
you are constantly questioned and critiqued, even to your face, even by complete strangers. Mm-hmm. And yet I am the one who's absolutely fucked health-wise. <laughs> and you are comparatively pretty fucking healthy and less likely to die early than I am. But no one bothers me around my uh, my health and it just per- perfectly displays the whole health versus, I don't know, fat debate. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, is a, it is a very transparent moment when someone who does not know me tells me that they are concerned for my health. Where I'm like, what do you know about me that I don't know? What's happening mm-hmm. here? Yeah. Um, break into the lab and find my blood test results. Totally, yeah. totally. Uh, and I, I think it's also very revealing about how culturally we are willing to put our perception of someone else's health at the center of mm-hmm. when and whether we treat someone else with dignity in a really basic way, right? Like, even if people did know specific uh, health conditions that you have, it would still be deeply weird of them to walk up to you as a stranger and go, I'm really concerned about your health. You probably shouldn't be eating that, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that's a weird meddling thing to do. Um, But it's our primary template for engaging with fat people. 100%. I mean, I've had the main way. Yeah, I've had Roxanne Gay on this podcast Mm -hmm. uh, tell me that she's had someone come up to her and remove an item of food from her trolley as an attempt to help her to save her from herself. Yeah. Fucking amazing. I, mine was a watermelon. Someone took a melon out of my cart because it had too much sugar. (laughs) It's like, okay, great, good. This is fun. (laughs) It's, it's, it's such a weird, like morally superior Mm -hmm. and peculiar. I just, in a billion years, I wouldn't consider doing something like that. And something that you get into in your book that we both especially want to talk about was this feeling Mm. of responsibility that thin people seem to have taken upon themselves Mm -hmm. as if they are like, um, what do you call it? Not a plainclothes policeman, just sort of um, like a citizen's arrest. Yeah, totally. That's a really good way <laughs> of, of body fat. That. Do you know what I mean? Like this, like <laughs> yeah. sort of vigilante citizens arrest intervention culture. <laughs> that is such a good way of putting that because boy, oh boy, that's exactly what it feels like is happening. Is someone's just like, I understand it's my civic duty. If you see something, say something. And I have seen a fat person. Here we go. Right. <laughs> but I think it's also a natural outcome of, you know, part of all our sort of cultural script around fatness is the idea that fat people have failed where thin people have succeeded. Uh So as much as fat people are being told, we've messed up in some really basic ways and somebody better come rescue us, thin people have been told, you're the people who can do the rescuing. Just look at you. You must have done something, right? Yeah. Teach the others. Yeah, Teach totally. the others of your way. It's, and, th- and then there's like a weird sub like grossness um, where we congratulate thin people and treat them as though like they had the discipline. They mm-hmm. had the get up. We have a similar thing you talk about in your book is you, we reserve this kind of like huge respect for people who've, you know, lost a ton of weight. And I don't want to take anything away from those people. It's not my place to judge either way. But we look at those as like, they wanted it badly enough. They were hard workers. That is to I respect you now that you have conformed. And yet, then we don't talk about the fact that we have this, and I think this is quite Western, but this obsessive uh, applause for people who are skinny, who can eat loads of shit. Yeah, totally. It's the weirdest. That to me is like, so like the, the culture of like, that's reinforced very like subliminally by supermodels eating big bowls of pasta. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, which, as someone who's in an industry with a lot of these people, like that pasta is being literally spat out into a cup uh, most of the time. I know that because I watch it happen um, on set. Uh, so we, you know, we've uh, the '90s had a lot of like imagery and like uh, narratives around like a a rake thin uh, actress who is just eating a bagel or some ice cream, and all the mm-hmm. men call her a pig, and everyone laughs about what a, you know what a pig she is, and they're trying to reinforce that like wow, she can eat so much, but she's so skinny and eats so much Mm -hmm. shit. So we haven't even like, just to add to the ridiculousness of this, we haven't even come down on a side. Mm -hmm. Not that we even should, not that it's anyone's business, but we can't Mm -hmm. even decide how we feel about that. There's no criticism for the people can eat shit who might have high cholesterol, like I do, who might have this, that and the Mm -hmm. other because they've achieved thinness. Therein lies the disingenuousness of it, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. It sort of reveals itself as like a project that's not interested in ideological consistency, right? And I think part of that is, listen, there's a thing that um, my co-host Michael Hobbs talks about a fair amount, which is almost sort of a definition of a, a shorthanded definition of a moral panic is what do we not need evidence to believe Mm-hmm. And I think at this point, we don't need evidence to believe that fat people are unhealthy and that they are deserving of our scorn and that they sort of deserve whatever's coming to them. Right. Like all of that is sort of like we don't really need evidence of that. Mm-hmm. We need evidence to puncture that. And that only sometimes works, you know. Yeah. And also a lot of people don't believe that fat phobia is an actual well, that it exists. Mm-hmm. They can they they say they're just concerned, and that's what we've now labeled as concern trolling. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't see it as a form of discrimination because mm-hmm. uh I guess there are a multitude of reasons. And I can say it's one of the last groups, and I'm not saying the only group, mm-hmm. but one of the last groups where it is actually okay to like openly abuse and ridicule them. Um, in my opinion, from what I see on every stand-up set, uh, from what I see in movies and in, you know, on like a big podcast full of men who are on testosterone injections uh it's a it's an obsessive subject in which people can be incredibly dehumanizing and it's one of the last groups in which that's allowed um and and i think some people justify it as not being able to be called uh like a hate attack or something like that because there is an inherent blame it's like Mm. well racism is bad because someone can't help their race colorism is bad because of this gender like based stuff is is fucked up because it can't but when it comes to non-binary issues or gender issues we consider Mm. that to be a choice we used to consider homosexuality to be a choice Mm. and we very much so above all else consider fatness to be a definitive choice and lack of care and lack of self-respect Which is so tricky because, look, man, it should be people's choice how they want their bodies to look and how Mm -hmm. they want their bodies to be regarded. But we get culturally hung up on this sort of rhetorical device of like, if you're choosing something, then I don't have to respect it because you could make the choice that would earn my respect here, right? Um, And that, in the case of fat people, is choosing to be thin, quote unquote. I mean, I think it's worth noting that um, the research shows pretty definitively that for someone my size, uh, I am, I will say I wear a size 26 currently. Um, uh, for someone my size, uh, we have a less than 1% chance in our lifetime 
of attaining our sort of BMI mandated weight, right? Of Mm -hmm. attaining what is medically defined as a quote unquote healthy weight. Mm -hmm. So even if being fat is a choice, becoming thin is not really an option, right? So like, hang on to being fat as a choice if you want to, that's fine. Again, it should be a choice that's available to folks. But uh, the idea that fat people could just like, you know, put some shoulder into it and give it a, you know, give it the old college try and you just get there in no time has been disproven time and time and time again. Yeah. You talk about this guy at college, I think it was, <sighs> who was, who kind of gave you the calories in, calories out spiel. And yeah. there was definitely a part of me that believed that 15 years ago when I had mm-hmm. my own eating disorder. Um, and I just, uh, felt like everything was my fault and it was easy and I judged myself and that of course would probably bleed out onto others but um it's vital that we continue to have the conversation about the multitude of things alongside the fact that fat should be a choice and mm-hmm. and um must be all of we like inherent in our bodily autonomy conversation when we're talking about reproductive rights mm-hmm. we should remember my body my motherfucking choice mm-hmm. um but uh, there are a multitude of things that contribute that I would love to get into with you seeing yeah. as you are so like uh, educative in your book around it. There's a multitude of things that contribute to someone's size as to why they can, they may never be thin, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I mean, can, for example, can you describe ghrelin to me? Yes, absolutely. So uh, ghrelin and leptin, well, I'll back us up and say, I think when we think and talk about dieting uh, or attempting to lose weight or attempting Mm -hmm. to become thin, whatever your framework is, lifestyle choice, whatever, (laughs) Um, uh, one of the key ingredients that we talk about culturally is this idea of willpower. And actually, um, a considerable amount of medical research now shows that what we think of as willpower is actually two hormones, ghrelin, which is sort of nicknamed the hunger hormone, mm-hmm. and leptin, which is designated as the satiety hormone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's worth knowing that those two kick in when your body dips below its usual intake of food or calories, right? Um, so it is a biological mechanism that when you start eating less, you get more hungry and it takes more food to make you full, right? That's not an issue of willpower. That's an issue of like your hormones are kicking in and your body is doing what it's supposed to do, which is make sure you get enough food, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that feels like a really crucial part that we're missing. I mean, I think the other thing that feels really crucial as a missing link to me is, you know, we've got this idea of calories in, calories out, which comes from a paper from 1959. And I'll say this, there's not a lot of medical research from 1959 that would sort of pass muster Mm -hmm. (laughs) these days, right? Like there's a lot more that we have learned since then. Um, The idea behind calories in, calories out was that you could uh, reduce your caloric intake by 3,500 calories uh, and that would lead to one pound of fat lost, right? Um, And that has now been debunked very publicly in a number of journals since I think the mid 1980s was the first time that it was which like is fully crazy dismantled. because I swear I've read it even in the last two years. It is. It has been my entire lifetime that yeah. we have known that this mm-hmm. is not a functional model. There was one. Hang on, let me find the quote for you because it is bonkers. <laughs> 
Um, there was a research review in 2015 in the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics that said that calories in, calories out, quote, lacks a contemporary scientific foundation and leads to a large error in weight loss prediction, even in the short term. Mm-hmm. And they went on to say that there is probably not a tool that exists that can help individuals or an entire population predict weight loss or weight gain. A hundred percent. I mean, also, like, I think it's important to say without naming the actual number, like I was eating in the low hundreds for years mm-hmm. and couldn't drop a pound. And mm-hmm. that's because this shit doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter. I was way under the 3,500 cutting mark and I was over-exercising. Mm-hmm. My body had gone into something called starvation mode, which happens yeah. incredibly fast for a lot of people. And it's a good thing that it happens. It's seen as a bad thing that we hate our bodies for. That is your body's way of surviving because it thinks you're in a motherfucking famine. It doesn't think you have a party or a wedding that you need to lose weight for. It thinks you are being denied food and therefore is trying to save your life by putting the brakes on how thin you get so that you don't literally waste away. So this shit is never spoken about. And if anything, people are like, starvation mode doesn't exist and blah, 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 blah. I don't know what the exact terminology is for it. Therefore, I am not an expert, but I can tell you from lived experience of two decades that this shit doesn't work and it damages you forever, damages your metabolism, your mental health and your vital organs. I had a blood test results yesterday, Aubrey, and I've been Mm. eating properly for six years. I've been eating properly and dealt with my eating disorder for six fucking years. And I was told that I am (laughs) across the board fucked and depleted and I have no proper nutrients and this, that and the other because I have destroyed my body for so long that it's going to take me like 10, 15 years to catch up all the damage I did. So I just wanted to back that up with a little bit of lived lived experience. I'm sorry to hear all of it. And like, this is... I don't know. Everybody gets to make their own choice. For me, that is much too high a price to pay. Yeah. That is much too high a price to pay. And it's an endless price. It's an endless price. And no one ever tells you about that. And that kind of comes into this kind of like panic culture, right? Of like, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what's going to happen to them later. We've just got to get fat people to lose weight as fast as possible. I think the biggest loser was one of the most damaging things Mm -hmm. that we could have seen in our culture because you do watch people lose an astonishing amount of weight within like seven weeks or however Mm -hmm. long the show ran. But they're exercising for nine hours a day. And I just want to quickly add and then I will shut the fuck up. (laughs) One of the many problems with that show, aside from the glorification of weight loss and Mm. the hatred of fat people and the disgusting Mm -hmm. way in which they were spoken to by the trainers, working out for nine hours a day or whatever the fuck they were doing and eating low calories might work in the short term. Mm. But after two months, stressing your body like that because it's so unnatural can cause your cortisol levels, which are your stress hormones, to rise, which then means your insulin comes up to match your cortisol levels. And you can develop insulin resistance. You can develop cortisol problems, adrenal fatigue, Hmm. all of which explain why most of those people, most of those people gain the weight back and then some, not because they failed, not because they don't have like willpower, but because it's not only not sustainable, it's literally bad and damaging for your body in the long term. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think famously, I can't speak to the cortisol and insulin and all of that, but I can say that there was very famously a uh, long-term follow-up study on people who were on The Biggest Loser, mm. uh, uh, and they found that their metabolisms permanently downshifted by hundreds of calories per day. 
right? So they were where previously they might have been burning a higher number of calories per day. Um, now their metabolisms had downshifted by six or 800 calories per person, really sort of staggering numbers. And mm-hmm. that damage appeared to be long-term, if not permanent. And that's a result of, you know, a TV show that was demanded and celebrated by a culture that wanted to watch a thin person shout at fat people and tell them they were going to die if they didn't stay on that treadmill. You know, like it, it is um, both modeling a deeply damaging behavior internally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and modeling sort of like very near exercise addiction <laughs> sort of levels, right? Um, and also... It was modeling how to treat fat people. And while we all learned the internal lesson, we also kind of passively picked up some of the external lessons too, right? And picked up on this idea that really that is how fat people deserve to be treated, is that the loving thing to do for a fat person is to shout at them and tell them they're a failure and so on and so forth. I mean, it's it's really a, a brutalizing kind of logic. Well, it's also like a weird lineage of, of this narrative that fat people are stupid, mm-hmm. stupid and lazy, but specifically stupid. So it's like everything has to be broken down to them like they are a stupid baby who mm. doesn't understand how to function in this world. Yeah, I think the logic is basically like, we must not know because if you knew, you wouldn't look like that, right? It's sort of mm-hmm. the most uh sort of bald-faced <laughs> approach to that, right? Um, is that I'm I'm looking at you and I can see that you don't know how to be a thin person. You can look at me and see that I am a thin person. So let me teach you how to be more like me. Mm-hmm. Which the relationship message of that, I will say, as a fat person, is it is such a deeply, profoundly and pervasively dehumanizing thing to be looked at by most people as a fixer upper mm-hmm. you know as what i mean before picture yeah as yeah as a project mm-hmm. as like a fun little project for this person to sort of drop in on and give me a bunch of weight loss advice that would almost certainly uh you know at the very least weaken my relationship with them at the very most trigger an eating disorder or a relapse right like it is, um, I think we have some cultural reckoning to do with mm-hmm. that as our primary template for viewing fat people. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week, you know, as you're bottling things up, because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel, you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy, regardless of whether they think they need it, because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal. 
that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Well, one of the things you do in your book, which I think is fucking vital, is you offer a little bit of advice for people when it comes mm. to... You you require for everyone to check in with themselves about their own bias and you mm. offer a little bit of information and... uh I don't know, some tips, some helpful tips for people when it comes to how to investigate where that urge comes from. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, each of the chapters in this book, it's called uh, You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. Um, each of the chapters are pretty short and pretty direct rebuttals of very common myths about fatness and fat people. And many of them end with either action steps or sort of reflection questions for folks mm -hmm. to think about where their biases come from. Where did you learn that you shouldn't say the word fat? Do you test that out with people? Do you ask them what they'd like to be called? How often are you calling people fat to their face? That seems like a rare occasion. Mm -hmm. Maybe knock that off, right? <laughs> um, I would say... A couple of the biggest things that that come up as sort of um, repeated themes in those um, action steps and reflection questions are things about looking at your own relationships with fat people uh, mm -hmm. in your life and thinking about how often you ask for feedback. Are there ways that you could better show up for that person? Do they have mm -hmm. feedback to deliver to you, right? Um, another one is there are more sort of academic tools for assessing your own bias. The Harvard Implicit Associations test on body size is a decent way. It's a very quick, like, just pull out your laptop or your iPad and take that test, see what you think. Um, and that'll give you sort of an indication of um, when and whether you've got implicit bias leaning one way or another. Um, and I think the last one is uh, that, you know, this shouldn't be the first or only book you read by a fat person about fatness, right? That sort of throughout the book, there are a number of recommendations of other folks' work um, and opportunities for folks to expand their understanding of fat experiences because, boy, oh boy, I'm one person, right? <laughs> and uh, we live in a world that continues to, certainly journalistically, continues to regard thin people as the experts on fat people's experience, right? 
that when we see news stories about the quote-unquote obesity epidemic, the people we see interviewed are thin people and doctors about why this is a problem. We don't actually hear from fat people, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it feels really um, worth in our own media consumption figuring out how to offset that and seek out more fat voices because those aren't generally being lifted up for us. You also offer the resource of giving fat people their own literal rebuttals as to like not even rebuttals mm -hmm. like the the book in and of itself is a rebuttal but you give them sentences that they mm -hmm. can say that you empower them to use and and you galvanize them to use when confronted with that which is a fucking hard thing to do by the way like yeah, you've been body shamed totally. i've been body shamed both to our faces um it's uh i don't know about you but i used to like um when people would bully me to my face about my weight i would start shaking yeah. I, I like it's it's hard to stand up for yourself because you don't feel like society's got your back you yeah. don't feel like anyone's gonna step in when I would be called a racial slur there was mm. weirdly like I had I, I used to shake less because I knew it's likely that someone's gonna step in but mm. when I had to defend my weight when I had to defend my body there was a part of me that didn't know if I was allowed and I think that's where the shaking comes from, the shame and the not being sure, which I think a lot of us face. And what you do in this book is that you tell people that you are sure that it is unacceptable and that you, Aubrey mm -hmm. Gordon, have their fucking back. Yes, absolutely. Can you tell me some of those sentences someone should use? Because it's the new year. Everyone's fucking thinks it's like it's hyper normalized to talk about everyone else's bodies and our own bodies. And it becomes body obsession month. Um, can we, it's a thinuary essentially, yeah, is what I feel totally. like we should rename it. Um, totally. Can you talk to me about some of those sentences? Just give me some of them. Yeah, absolutely. I would say, so one of the big things that comes up is diet talk or people recommending diets is sort of a, a gentle way um, that people will, uh, that they think of as gentle um, and that it, I do not experience as gentle um, to sort of quote unquote help out a fat person is that they'll recommend diets and there are more and less direct ways to do this. The most direct is my personal favorite, which is I don't actually want to hear everything you think that I should do to stop looking like me. I don't need that. Have this you, is what I look have like. You, have you used these sentences personally? Absolutely. For That's sure. Amazing. With people in my family. <laughs> I have used them a number of times. And with coworkers and so on and so forth, right? And did they get easier to say? Every Absolutely. Time. There's no question. And they get used to hearing them from me and they're like, I know, I know. Right. Like, oh so it becomes like a way of setting a boundary that we can all reference as, hey, we all know this is a boundary for me. Uh-uh, knock it off. Um, I am also a fan of, listen, if you want to get extremely direct, uh, I have had times in my life where I have said, this is such a hard boundary for me that if you cross it, I'm getting up and leaving. And you can call me when you're ready to talk. Uh and like move on to the next, right? Um, but I think this stuff is, we think of those as unkind responses without really um, checking in with ourselves about how profoundly unkind it is to approach someone else and tell them to look different so that we're more comfortable, right? Like that is a wild and deeply self-centered thing to do. Yeah. And I don't think a direct response is uncalled for in that kind of stuff. I mean, you can also use softer interventions like, you know, you're way more interesting than this conversation. And this conversation about weight loss is really boring. Can we talk about something else? <laughs> you know? I know. Or I know, like this feeling of like, do you do you think I don't know? Like, it's yeah. this idea of someone feeling like they are uh, exposing you to a truth that you've been burying your head in the sand about. 
That too, for sure. It's fucking bizarre. I, I always like, I was thinking, I was watching this um, documentary about Marilyn mm. Monroe recently mm. and marveling at how just by casting her in a movie, I think it was Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, mm. right? And that was a sort of like part of the beginning of reinforcing the idea that blonde women are not only f- more fun, but they're also dumber. And mm-hmm. she had to play a stupider person than she was because mm. she is blonde. I don't know. There, there's less ableist ways of saying what I'm trying to say. Uh, <laughs> she's <laughs> sure, less, sure. Uh, and I'll keep this in so we can all check ourselves, but we have this idea. The, the terminology they would use is stupid, but like what we'll say is uh, less intellectually gifted um, mm-hmm. or interested. Um, and so we, they, within a matter of like a short number of years, were able to create a myth based on people's hair colour that Mm. has gone on to haunt people for Mm. the next 70-something years. And the reason I bring that up is that surely via that, we can see how quickly and how expertly the media can create a bias Mm. that can go on to live relatively unchecked forever. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of us that kind of goes, well, obviously we don't need to do studies that prove that blonde people are as... But by the way, specifically blonde women. There was no shit about how blonde men are more fun and how yeah, blonde yeah, yeah. men... There is this idea that blonde women are more sexual. They are they are the sort of floozy, fun gal who you can't hold a proper conversation with, who you kind of have to baby and treat with kid gloves. Um, how mm. can we look at that and not see how quickly these tropes and myths are created? Absolutely. And I would say even underneath that one, there's like uh, the underpinning of that feels even more pernicious, which is the message to men is if you to straight cis men is if you experience sexual desire for a woman, you don't need to care about what she thinks or what she needs. And she probably doesn't know and couldn't tell yeah, you. Totally. Right? Like it's like such it's such a layered garbage message. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and the beginning of many. I mean, we know about the kind of like bigger tropes, like the ones about black people or brown people or Asians. Like we're we're just like, we're stereotype machines. But the one about blonde hair, the reason that I became so obsessed with that is that that is to me as meaningless. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're all fucking meaningless, Mm -hmm. but that's so insane Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) that it could be something like someone's hair color that led to people dyeing their hair color in order to seem a certain way that shows us that the media just wants to sway us and control us. And I talk I talk about, I mean, like entertainment, the entertainment industry just wants to sway us, control us, make us judge ourselves, judge each other. And it's creating all of these like arbitrary nonsense rules. Well, and I would say like, listen, even for people who are not twirling their mustaches and like tying people to the train tracks, right? Like not the full on villains. I also think like, listen, we're in a place where um, many media outlets are laying off journalists, right? And are cutting back on fact-checking staff and are cutting back on mm-hmm. like really critical elements of being able to do their jobs well. So even passively, like the opportunities for um, good and solid journalistic work are fewer and further between than they have been in a long time, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Well, on top of that, it's also important to remember, and I've said this before in this podcast, But if you look on the side panels of most articles that you read from most newspapers, Mm. you will almost definitely see paid advertising that comes from 
the diet industry, whether it's weight loss, injections, pills, detox, diet shakes, all this different shit. Once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. And so I urge you, whenever you are reading anything that seems skewered towards a more like medical or factual background, yeah. look at who the fucking sponsors are, because there's absolutely zero way that that does not influence heavily what is being said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's vital that you do that because this is this is the only way that most uh, media outlets are able to make money is via advertising because very few are on subscription basis. So think about the fact that you are being fed actual propaganda mm. um, potentially. Yeah, and and uh, listen, even if you stop short of propaganda, I think it's. Uh, not unthinkable to consider a profit motive, right? Mm -hmm. That there is a profit motive, right? When we feel dissatisfied with our bodies, when we see how fat people are treated mm -hmm. and want to keep, uh, when thin people want to keep themselves sort of quote unquote socially safe from the treatment that fat people experience, mm -hmm. all of that stands to make somebody some money and gain somebody some power. And it's worth checking in with ourselves about that in particular. I mean, I think very famously, um, famously to me, I don't know how famously to anybody else, but, um, the, uh, person who, um, owns the parent company for Weight Watchers also owns a number of snack food companies mm -hmm. and has said publicly, I've got them coming and going, whether they're trying to lose weight or they're not trying to lose weight, they're buying stuff from me is a thing that that dude is quoted as having said in Forbes. Like, this is not like secret behind closed doors, whatever mm -hmm. murky internet rumor stuff. This is just like on the face of it. Here's what's happening, you know? Yeah. Well, again, you and I touched on this maybe a year ago or so, mm. but uh, it also, because 95% of diets fail, I believe you mm. said to me last time. Mm. Um, and that's really like, think about that statistic for a second 95 percent, and they're almost designed to fucking fail um and i'd like to like briefly get into the weight loss injections uh mm. that have become huge recently and it's so reckless to see so many women's magazines covering it mm. um and it'll only be a matter of time before they start advertising it openly on their pages uh mm. but basically uh these weight loss injections work the ones that you're hearing as the skinny pen or the hollywood weight loss uh, craze um they work by creating so much nausea constipation, uh, physical cramps, um, sometimes pancreas and liver issues that make you unable to eat, uh, mm. that you then just sort of stop eating. And so you'd experience a lot of times very fast weight loss very um, for in a short period of time because you have stopped eating. You are starving yourself. Now, at some point, almost invariably, people who are not diabetic, these, sorry, this medication, if I hadn't said already, I beg your pardon. Mm -hmm. This medication is designed for diabetics. Now, some people who take these are, have no issues with diabetes. They're taking it just for weight loss now because of this new weight loss injection craze. Um, if you do not have diabetes, this medication is especially dangerous for you and it is mm -hmm. unsustainable. Once you come off it, because you have brought your metabolism to a standstill, because all it's made you do is starve. It's not a miracle f fat changer. It's just starvation. It's a starvation tool that makes you not know you're starving. When the weight comes back on and then some, it is almost impossible to get off the next time, just so you know, uh, because you have crashed your fucking metabolism. Mm -hmm. That is very classic in any quick fix method that we've ever seen. We've talked about the Atkins diet, mm -hmm. keto, all these things that fucking... The, the six months in which it was normalized for grown adult women specifically and mm -hmm. some gay men to live on water, 
that had lemon, cayenne pepper, <laughs> and maple syrup, and a little yeah. bit of maple syrup yeah. in it. And people yeah. were walking around. I remember it. People were walking around dizzy and being told that if they felt like shit, it was a good thing because that meant their body was really detoxing. We had grown adult people at their jobs living on lemon water with chili pepper in it. Oh, this was a good friend of mine who I worked with did this at one point. Absolutely the kindest person I know in my life, period. Mm -hmm. Jessica, lovely. Uh, and she was on like day four. We worked together at the time. And uh, one of our other coworkers noticed that she was extremely on edge and was like, hey, it might be time to like have a meal. And she burst into tears and went, you don't care about my health. And I was like, okay, so this is no longer Jessica. We're in like invasion of the body snatchers mode. You are completely being controlled by something outside of you at this point. And that's what happens when you don't eat food. Yeah, I mean, everyone got yeah. sick. Like a lot of people got sick and then other people just gained the weight in about a week and a half afterwards mm. and then some and then found it very difficult to lose weight afterwards. These mm. are designed to fail. Mm. This is, it is, the system isn't broken. We've said this about many different institutions within the United mm. States and the West in general. The system is working exactly as intended. They mm. get as many diet books out there as they can as quickly as possible, as many influencers try and become the face of that new fad mm. and then when it fails no one talks about the fact that it failed mm. we just move on to the next one we never investigate oh like 20 different massive global generational mm. fads failed one mm. after the other after the other mm. we never talk about the kidney damage we never talk about the fact that everyone's metabolism is now crashed we never talk about mm. the fact that the eating disorders are now the highest they've ever been mm. we just move on and we're doing it again with the fucking weight loss injections well Here's what I'll say. So we were talking earlier about like, what's the internal lesson and what's the external lesson from mm -hmm. The Biggest Loser? I would say there's an internal lesson and an external lesson um, with uh, semaglutide and these um, weight loss injections as well. Um, I would say mm, uh, blood sugar management injections for diabetic people is what they are designed to be, right? As you noted. Mm -hmm. And as a result of this fad and this many people getting this attached uh to these weight loss injections and this sort of frenzied attempt to get them, there is now a shortage for mm -hmm. diabetic people who need shortage. these drugs to stay alive, to stay in their target blood sugar range, and to avoid really intense negative health outcomes. There are a number of our listeners have written into us saying they can't get their medication, Same. which they need in order to be safe and okay in the world. And I just want to Put a really fine point on culturally right now, we are making the decision that it is more important for people who don't have chronic health issues, for people who are not disabled to look the way that they want to look in a swimsuit than it is for diabetic people to stay alive, right? Mm -hmm. Like it feels really worth noting that there is a core moral question here as mm -hmm. well, both our own bodily safety, both doing what is, you know, right for you and all of that kind of stuff. And also um, it is creating ripple effects for people who don't just want to lose some weight quickly, right? Um, for folks who uh, need this as like a crucial part of their daily or weekly health regimen. I've spoken about this constantly online. Mm -hmm. Every time I bring up these fucking injections, I bring up the fact that we'd have not just a shortage in the United States, a global shortage we are now seeing of this medication because people can buy it off prescription for $1,000 to $1,500. So then it also creates this weird like uh, wealth gap issue where the wealthy are being able to take this mm -hmm. from people who have health issues who can't, even if they, 
even if they were able to access it off prescription, people who are diabetic, who desperately need it to survive, they can't afford to. And the price is being slowly jacked up. We're going to see the after effect of that in the new year, I think, when the price goes up even further for it and people can't afford it on their fucking copay. Uh, I heard a story um, from my DMs because I have so many diabetics from around mm. the world reaching out to me about the fact that they're terrified because they can no mm. longer get the medication they need. Um, they were saying that um, this woman said that her husband went to pick up his after months of waiting for it uh, from the pharmacy and the two girls working at the pharmacy asked him if they could pay him $1,000 for the pens, for the injections. Now that is really fucking disturbing. Yeah. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Something you and I spoke about privately, of our mm. frustrations, was that during the pandemic... Uh, obesity, quote unquote, obesity mm. was used as like a huge flare signal mm-hmm. in which we were told obese people are responsible for the pandemic being as widespread as it is. They are the ones dying the most mm-hmm. and the fastest. They are spreading it essentially because they are susceptible to actually getting the virus. Um, and it was deemed completely acceptable to go fucking ham in the worst way I've seen mm-hmm. since the 90s on fat people because it was considered like you are endangering your society by being fat. So it's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And like I said, this is just from the tip of like, this is just come to me right now, but it's interesting yeah, yeah. to me that that moral argument existed that don't endanger others. Mm-hmm. And yet that's absolutely fine when it comes to weight loss. We yeah. can endanger people's lives. They can die from a lack of diabetes medication because of our pursuit to be thin. Mm-hmm. And there's no fucking eyebrows raised about that. Mm-hmm. And yet being fat was deemed specifically in the last two years as no longer just a danger to yourself, no longer mm-hmm. just promoting obesity, which we'll get into, mm-hmm. but you are literally endangering the well-being, health and life of your fellow citizens. Yeah, absolutely. And we had people like Boris Johnson sort of boosting that message and making it an official sort of um, state endeavor that that one of the sort of primary strategies in the UK for COVID was, uh, you know, a push for fat people to lose weight. Now, interestingly, putting on a mask takes about 10 seconds and then you're like pretty well protected in many cases Mm -hmm. from COVID transmission. For fat people to become thin, even if you accept a standard like, you know, the highest level of safe weight loss is one and a half pounds a week for however long, right? For me to become a thin person on that timeline would take years. 
Mm-hmm. By the time that happens, COVID will be a completely different sort of beast, right, mm-hmm. in our public imagination. <laughs> it is utterly absurd to be like, we have a pandemic happening right now. Quick, everybody, do something that might make a difference in five to ten years and has never <laughs> been shown to actually function as a population-level intervention, right? There is no jurisdiction, there is no municipality, there is no country in the world that has reversed its rates of fat people. There are no fewer fat people in any country in the world right now than there ever have been, right? No one has turned that around, and that also feels worth lifting up here. As a public health intervention, it makes zero sense to propose that this time we're really going to do the thing that we've never done, which is make everybody in the population lose weight. Like, Mm -hmm. we just don't know how to do that. It's, uh, it's, It's very absurd, and it really felt like the amount of anti-fatness that was sort of reactivated and kicked up during the pandemic really led back to a bunch of very old, weird, you know, dusty kind of ideas about fatness and fat people, right? The amount of hand-wringing about um, the irresponsibility, the perceived irresponsibility of Mm -hmm. parents who, quote-unquote, let their children get fat uh, was a big part of that, at least as far as I saw, right? Um, in terms of COVID coverage, there were just all of these like really regressive, weird ideas that are directly counter to what we know scientifically and directly counter to most of our stated values, right? Mm -hmm. Like it is a deeply weird thing to look at a fat kid and then point to their parent and go, they're your fault, right? Like what a weird response to an adorable child looking at you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it is it is remarkable to me how quickly folks just latched right back on to some of the stuff that folks were maybe starting in little ways to let go of. It really well, felt like a that's just it. That I don't know if they were letting go. I think they were being mm. forced to let go because of the rise of people like Lizzo and because mm. of the you know like the curve um, coming back and also like the rise of more ethnic minorities mm. in media. A lot of whom happen to be more curvaceous and mm. certain allowed areas, uh, always with a small waist. Yeah, for some reason. Um, but it's, uh, I, f- I feel like a lot of people just felt like similarly with race mm. and with gender, they just weren't allowed to because it was being so societally accepted. Mm. And people in positions of power were no longer using this garbage rhetoric. Yeah. So it's almost like when Trump came into power and suddenly everyone was like ripped off the mask and was like, ha ha! we've been racist all along it feels as though this has just unearthed the fact that fat phobia never really went away it was just being tolerated because like like that it came back yeah and i would say i don't think there's any confusion amongst fat people that anti-fatness never went away right i would say it's similar to there is a lot of there are a lot of headlines right now about like oh no we're going back to thin is in and that's going to be terrible which i think for folks who are within uh, reach of being considered thin people, that would be mm-hmm. a really heartbreaking and hard thing. For someone my size, thin has never not been in, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, there has never been a point where people are like, yes, look at this amazing size 26 person, right? Like, that is an extremely rare thing for us culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, yeah, it, it, uh, it's a fascinating thing that like, I don't, I don't, um, I don't think it's that people thought, uh, anti-fatness was uh, no longer socially acceptable. I think it still is extraordinarily socially acceptable because it is accepted. But for the first time, people would have to answer to it to anyone, 
Someone mm-hmm. might leave a comment and go, hey, maybe think about this or, hey, this doesn't feel good to read or whatever. I mean, I think that's sort of where we're at is that someone will say something to you if you say something anti-fat, potentially, depending on where you are, depending on the context, right? Well, as you bring up in your book, like, I think this is myth number 10, like, we now feel as though if we don't interrupt fatness when we see it, for example, someone just living in their body in a nice Mm. outfit online, Mm. we consider that to be that we are allowing the glorification Mm -hmm. of fatness. Can you unpack that for me? This, like, where this myth has come from? Because I've... Really rarely seen this in any other context. Mm-hmm. But a fat person existing online is considered to be glorifying or promoting mm-hmm. fatness. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. So I will say this usually shows up as a response to a photograph of a fat person on a beach or eating a meal or with their friends, not actively working out, not talking about their weight loss goals in the caption, not any of that sort of stuff that might indicate that they are on a path toward thinness or that they know that their body is going to be perceived as socially incorrect somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, You will get these waves of comments from people saying, of course we shouldn't treat fat people badly, but we also can't glorify obesity or promote obesity which is a bizarre response to a picture of somebody having a nice day at the beach, right? Like, at that point, those commenters are now assigning a social agenda and a political agenda that does not necessarily exist in that fat person's post. And I think my my uh, thinking on this is, um, you know, I think one of the number one questions about glorifying obesity is like, How do you respond when someone says you're glorifying obesity? And my Mm -hmm. response to that is I don't. That is someone who is telling me they are not interested in seeing my humanity. That is someone who is more panicked about having to look at a fat person Mm -hmm. than they are in interested in understanding our experiences or showing up for us in any real way. I'm like so deeply here for good faith conversations and the trolls who drop in with "you're glorifying obesity" are not people who are interested in a good faith conversation. Generally speaking, it is an extraordinarily strange social impulse um, to see a photo of someone having a good day and say, "There's an agenda here." There's no link right. in my bio for thirty um, percent off at McDonald's. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's yeah, no, yeah, yeah. there's literally no endorsement of anything. Yeah. They're just wearing a nice skirt. They're daring to wear a skirt. They're enjoying their lives. They look happy. They might be in love. They might be in love, God forbid, with a fat person or even more, God forbid, with a thin person. Remarkable. It's just, (laughs) it's bonkers. And I think, you know, we've spoken about this before. Like it comes Mm -hmm. from a fear-based place, right? We look at Mm -hmm. fat and we think about the way that fat people are ostracized and we think that we could catch it. I think we spoke about this the first time we ever hung out. Like the, fear, the contagion fear of fatness of like, God, if you make me think that fatness is okay, then I might become mm-hmm. fat because you've been promoting it to me. And then mm-hmm. if I become fat, then I'm going to be ostracized too. Yeah. And you really need to like identify that knee jerk reaction when the hairs mm-hmm. on your the back of your neck stand up when you see a picture of a fat person. Really, maybe write down the thoughts you're immediately having. Mm. I know that sounds like a lot to ask, but if something that if it's something that keeps you up at night or makes mm. you feel the need to comment to a stranger about their personal life or even someone yeah. that you know and love and are related to, 
I really like what I love about your book is that you really force people to ask themselves why. And I think mm. like in the in the sort of in the art of of conversational combat, that's one mm. of the most powerful tools you can ever do where you mm. don't put it upon yourself to explain them to you. Mm-hmm. You ask someone to investigate themselves and almost always in doing so they are then forced to unpack something, empathize, yeah. and they're not defensive because they're mm-hmm. busy investigating themselves. And it's a really powerful tool um, that this book gifts so many people with. Oh, that's so kind of you to say so. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that whole art of checking ourselves and checking in with ourselves, mm-hmm. particularly around body image, particularly around um, our own anti-fat attitudes or the ways that we think it's quote-unquote helpful to treat fat people, um, almost always lead back to, as you identified, sort of a social fear, right? A fear of being treated and perceived the way that fat people are treated and perceived. Mm-hmm. And in all of those cases, the answer to alleviate that anxiety isn't get thin, stay as thin as possible all the time. None of us are in full control of that at any point, right? Most of us aren't in control of it much at all, Um nor is the answer to create as much distance in uh, between how people perceive fat people and how people perceive you, right? That's also not an answer to sort of separate yourself out from fat people. The answer is to make the world a safer and more dignified and more welcoming place for fat people, right? Yeah. That if we're able to do that, then a lot of those social fears become less and less attractive to us. They pull on us less and less if we see more fat people being treated better and being accepted and loved and celebrated um, and lifted up, right, in our communities. That changes the dynamics of what we're afraid of, right? Um, It's a different thing to be afraid of, uh, you know, being a fat person, say, uh, before the burst of Lizzo onto the scene <laughs> than after, right? Like that is a marked difference in how people perceive fat people on some level. Imperfect, incomplete, should not be all on her shoulders, but we're seeing like big shifts in how people sort of think about and respond to fatness and fat bodies. And that's a result of seeing fat people celebrated, right? Yeah. It also like just like is worth stressing, even though it's so obvious, especially to mm. a wonderful advanced audience like this one. But shame never works mm-hmm. for anything. Shame might create a result uh, very quickly and very briefly, as in it will not last. Mm-hmm. But shame doesn't work. Shame creates only unhealthy emotional and physical health in those whom we shame. Mm -hmm. And I know this as someone who was shamed into losing weight, Mm -hmm. who was shamed into staying thin, who was shamed when I gained weight. Mm -hmm. It has never had the desired long-term impact that anyone wanted it to have on me. Well, and it corrodes our relationships, right? Yes. Like it it messes with... And it corrodes our relationship with ourselves, by the way. Like that shame that you Mm externalise onto someone else, that you project on someone else, it's all seeping in to you. Mm -hmm. It's all going in that point. You're drinking the poison yourself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and spreading it to other people, right? There is this concept that social psychologists will talk about called normative discontent, which is, I think, the classic example is when people bond over disliking parts of their bodies or say that they're, quote unquote, venting about their body image. And what research has shown about that is that when we think we're venting about our own body image, 
what we're doing is reinforcing that narrative to ourselves, that our bodies are worthless, that they're undesirable, that they're whatever, and that that has an effect on the people that we're talking to and anyone in earshot, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're venting about this stuff, that is both reinforcing our own negative body image. We think of it as blowing off steam. It's actually reinforcing that narrative and it's instructing other people around you how you expect them to feel about their bodies too. Even if that's not what we intend, that's the message that is received by that behavior. So it just seems worth like unpacking that both it is, um, you know, something that we internalize and it's something that when we internalize it and then have to deal with it, we also are creating a new social reality for the folks around us, too. It creates its own sort of gravitational pull, you know? A hundred percent. It just kind of creates this negativity loop that only mm-hmm. benefits the people who make money off of our discontent with ourselves and yeah. sometimes each other. So what would you say is the thing that you most hope to achieve from this book? I think we're in a place now where... Uh, thanks to shows like this one, thanks to sort of a growing um, uh, social sort of and political literacy around anti-fatness, more and more people are identifying anti-fat bias out in the wild more and more frequently. And it's kind of blowing their minds, (laughs) right? They're having the like galaxy brain response um, to the amount of anti-fatness in the world. And what happens at that point in someone's political education, it happens to me on every issue when I get there, um, is that it feels like this thing is so pervasive, I can't imagine where to start. And anything Mm -hmm. I come up with feels incomplete and imperfect, My hope is that folks who are in that state uh, or who are invested in this conversation and not sure where to start, pick up this book, get their own grounding uh, for themselves in facts and science and history and all of that sort of stuff so that they can then go out and do what they know how to do, which is tell their cousin who won't shut up about CrossFit that they don't want to hear it right now. Mm-hmm. Or talk to their parents about, you know, ditching some outdated language or ideas about fat people and what they should or shouldn't be wearing, right? Or talk to the healthcare providers in your life about their um, biases and treatment of fat patients, right? Um, these are all things that many of us know how to do. We know how to kind of get our friends and family in line. We know how to speak up when things aren't right. But on this particular issue, if folks don't feel like they've got their grounding in Uh, a narrative that makes sense to them in some facts that feel solid to them, um, that'll be a a barrier to taking action. So my hope is to remove that barrier. Yeah, it feels like this is the much needed antidote to the age of misinformation. You know, we have have it coming out in many other areas and it continuously gets overlooked. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the pandemic Mm -hmm. brought back up so many old, inaccurate, debunked, myths around Mm. fat people and fatness um, that desperately needed some proper fact-checking. And I thank you for always doing due diligence in your precision around these Mm. subjects and how, like, even though you have an emotional footing in this, I mean, right now we're talking and you're in a closet in your mother's home (laughs) and behind you is a, a, like, a 1980s weighing scale that is your childhood weighing scale that is still there. Why? 
it's my mom's house and she still has it. I don't know. It's moved with her across state lines a couple of times. And for the listener, I will say it's not a flat digital scale. It's the old timey doctor's office one. That you have uh, to keep tapping back and forth until it uh-huh. is like, like a spirit level, right? Until it's completely uh-huh. straight. So I'll say this. Anytime I come down here, I come down here every December and spend a little time with family And when I do, I record in this closet because it's the most sort of soundproof room in the space. And every time, this is the one place where you can set a chair and a laptop. So every time this scale is in the background, this time when I came down to visit, I told my mom that it had been like a kind of hilarious icebreaker in interviews to have the scale in the background. And she felt badly about it. So she hung a picture on the scale when I first got here. But it was like a little tiny picture. So you could see that it was a picture <laughs> hanging on a... Like, it didn't cover it up. She was like, I just thought I'd decorate it. I thought it was really, really oh funny and really God, charming. That's so, that's so funny. If you ever that's end really up burning funny. that scale, please send us a video. Um, but oh what I was going to say is that you are someone who, as a child, were put on diets, encouraged to diet. That, that happened throughout a large portion of your life. Mm. You have faced fat phobia you faced discrimination for years you didn't feel safe to even put your face and real name out there Mm -hmm. online because of the danger that you were in this is something that has very much so personally affected you and yet in all of your work staggeringly to me Mm. you managed to be personal but also not personal in your Mm. arguments this is a this is like a factual precision strike Mm. Uh, that we desperately need where it becomes incredibly obvious to someone like me that your your activism, Shay Yakuwa says, you know, it should always be um, trauma-informed but never trauma-led. And I really feel mm. that about your work. And so everyone should go out and buy You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. It is whether you are fat, whether you are not, whether you know fat people or don't, uh, which would be really fucking weird. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I hope you will go out and buy this book because it is, it's like armor. It's incredible. You feel, I feel like one of the fucking Avengers now. Like I have a shield of information around me. Um, And so buy the book, write in, follow Aubrey. She's the fucking best. So many of us, uh, follow her to know what the right thing in the world is which is so much stress for you to hear but um (laughs) come on to my podcast a thousand other times i could talk to you all day likewise it's a treat every time thank you so much for having me i'm so happy that you're my friend much for listening to this week's episode i weigh with jamila jamil is produced and researched by myself jamila jamil aaron finnegan and kimmy gregory it is edited by andrew carson and the beautiful music you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend james blake if you haven't already please rate review and subscribe to the show it's a great way to show your support we also have a bonus series exclusively on Stitcher Premium called Ask Jamila Anything. Check it out. You can get a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcher.com forward slash premium and using the promo code IWAY. Lastly, over at iWay, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iwaypodcast at gmail.com. And now love to pass the mic to one of our fabulous listeners. I weigh my mixed race heritage and multicultural upbringing that has enriched and continued to enrich my life in so many ways.
I weigh the music that I write and produce as a woman of colour, still in a very white and male-dominated music industry. I weigh my willingness to learn and to constantly challenge any internal biases that society forces upon us. I weigh my luck and my gratefulness to be alive. And I weigh my love for doggos. Thank you, Jamila, for creating this wonderful community. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.